Good morning. Welcome to Mount Calvary Church. My name is Matt Watson, and I'm the lead pastor. Um, we're thankful that you've chosen to worship with us today. Um, yeah, we are, we are grateful. What a beautiful set of worship. The song, that song that we can sing, that His mercy is more. It's more. It's stronger than anything we can bring to God. His mercy is more. And that's the God that we sing to, who listens to us. And BJ and for the whole worship team, thank you guys for, for serving and leading us this morning. I thought you were going to love how you can preach, BJ. You could take the whole, the whole thing. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're thankful that the song that we've just sung is truth. That your mercy is greater and stronger than anything that we can do. That no matter how we sin or what we've done or the extent of time that we have run from you, that your mercy is stronger and that at the cross there is forgiveness and life every single day. And I pray, God, that this morning that that message of new mercy would resonate with everyone that's here. For the person here who's struggled this last week, who is faced with or very aware of um, the darkness and the struggle in their life, God, I pray that now, in this moment, they would be aware of the mercy that's at the cross. For those who've been here and been in church for many, many years, God, I pray that this morning they would realize in a, in a new way, in a rejuvenated way, about your mercy and your love and your forgiveness that is new Every single day, God, may we never grow tired of the message of your mercy. All we have is because of you. We boast in nothing outside of you. And so, God, we continue to worship you this morning, and we praise you together in prayer today. God, as we open up your word, and as we look at the early church, the first church, God, I pray that you would um, speak to us. God, we want, as a church, to be the church that you want us to be. And I pray, God, that as we look at this first church, God, that you would humble us where we need to be humbled, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, God, that we would be um, pushed by the power of your scripture through the Holy Spirit to be the church you want us to be. And so, God, we humbly ask that you would do something powerful in the name of your spirit, by the power of the cross through Jesus Christ. We pray all these things. Amen. So like BJ said, we are going to start a, a new series for the next several weeks, and I'm calling this series The Devoted Church. And I reference this last week in my sermon. It's a pretty, I think it's a simple concept where we're taking the book of Acts, we're taking this early first church in the book of Acts, and we are going to paint a picture of what that church looked like in Acts 2. 
And like what happens if you've ever gone to Hershey Park and you've sat, I would never do this, but if you've sat and had someone paint a picture of you, the first thing you do as they, they're painting this picture is you hold it up next to you and you say, is that, is, that, is that what I look like? Are my ears that big? Is it like this is embarrassing? We're going to do that. We're going to look at the, at the book of Acts. We're going to paint the picture of the first church, and we're going to hold it up next to us, Mount Calvary Church, and we're going to say, does this look like us? Are we doing what we should be doing? Are we focused on what we should be focused on? And, and this is really important for us, church, because you look at the New Testament and you look at the, at the book of Acts, the, the book of Acts has so much to say about church. Volumes are said about church. Metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor about the church. The church is a group of citizens. The church is a family. The church is a vine. The church is a building. The church is a body. The local church is described in what they should be doing. The local church is described in what they should be emphasizing. We've got letters in the New Testament that describe how churches started. Letters in the New Testament that describe who attended church and how churches spread. We've got structures for leadership. We've got task lists of what the church should be doing. Volumes is said about the local church. And for us, this is significant for us to say, is this us? And if it's not us, if we have fallen short or if there's areas of growth when we make that comparison, what is stopping us from putting everything we have into becoming the New Testament church? And I think it's worthwhile for us to do this because much is at stake about this group of believers. Much is at stake. We've talked about it long ago in the, in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, where Paul says that the church wasn't just a plan that God kind of thought up of along the way, obviously. The church, instead of just kind of being the last-minute decision that God made, no, the church was the eternal plan of God. And Ephesians 3, Paul talks about how the church, eternally, God knew that the church was designed to present the wisdom of God to the spiritual world, which is a really interesting verse, verse in Ephesians 3. But what Paul is, is means is he says, the angels are watching the church to see what God's going to do next. And if the angels are watching, I can tell you, our neighbors are watching, and our community is watching, and the world is watching. What is God up to? And God has put it all in his plan that it is the church that is going to reveal the plan and the mercy and the love and the grace of God to the world. And so it is, it's a, it's a weighty series because there is much at stake. To do this, we're going to focus on Acts chapter 2. So you could turn to Acts 2, verse 42. This passage in Acts is probably the standard when it comes to what the church should look like. Um, so go ahead and turn to Acts 2, verse 
42 through 47. Before I read it, I want to give just a little bit of a backdrop about where they were when, this, when they started to devote themselves to this, to this new way. Um, it would have been in the spring. It would have been the day of Pentecost. Okay, so the day of Pentecost was where Jews from all over the world, but mostly within like 20 to 30 miles, would travel to Jerusalem. And they would come to the temple. And, and the, the feast of Pentecost, the celebration, was where they would bring their first fruits to offer sacrifices. It was also the time that they would, in worship at the temple together with thousands of, thousands of Jewish people from all over the world would come and they would remember the Mosaic Law. That God, in his grace, gave the law. And so this massive celebration kind of all convenes here in Jerusalem. And Peter stands up and he has the opportunity to share to thousands of people who've made their way to Jerusalem. And, and as you, you may know, Peter preaches the gospel. He preaches that Jesus Christ whom they had just crucified and killed, was the Messiah. He preaches in Acts 2 that he was, Jesus was, superior to David, which was significant for the Jewish listener. That Jesus was the exalted Son of God. And as people are listening, Peter makes this statement in 2.36, and it's a powerful statement about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. He says, Jesus was both Lord and Christ. And as he's teaching to these thousands of people who've come to the temple for something completely different, a really powerful thing happens. The people are listening, and by the power of the Spirit and what God's doing in this moment, people, the people are devastated. They're convicted. They realize that what Peter is saying about Jesus is true. And in, in this moment that they're listening and they realize who they just crucified. And you see this conviction. And people start to say, well, now what can we do about it? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Change your mind about who you think Jesus was. He's Christ and Lord, believe that this is who Jesus was. Believe it and trust it. And then be baptized. Show that you believe this by doing something publicly. Because if you can't publicly associate yourself with the mission of Christ, then what are you doing? And so that day in Jerusalem, 3,000 souls came to know Christ. Lord and Christ proclaiming their belief by being publicly baptized. And you could, I mean, as I have thought about this passage and I'm thinking about this transition to Acts 2.42, I just picture thousands of Jewish now new believers soaking wet from being baptized. They come out of the water and they look at each other and say, like, now what? Like, now what do we do? Like, what are we supposed to do? Because everything is now changing. Everything we thought we knew is now different. And if you don't like change in the church, think about how these people felt. 
everything changed. The temple had changed. Right? The temple became the, their bodies where the Holy Spirit was. The way that they worshipped changed. Who they were going to go to the temple with changed. Peter is going to talk about the Gentiles now being part of this believing community, which was the opposite of everything they had been taught. Everything was changing. And I picture them looking around saying, now what do we do? How do we worship? How do we meet? What does this gathering look like? And it leads us to Acts 4, 2, 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This morning, I want to focus just on that first phrase in 42. They were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. They were devoted. That's the word that's kind of stuck in my mind. They were devoted to these two things, to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. I'm kind of describing that they were devoted to truth, they were devoted to fellowship. Devoted to the apostles' teachings. Now, why? How? What was the difference or the change? I mean, you can kind of picture this. If they, or since they just changed their mind about who Jesus was, and since Jesus was now, that phrase in Acts 2.42, he is now both Lord, okay, he is the creator If he is Lord, that means he is resurrected. That means he is God, eternal creator. If he is Christ, that means he is the anointed one. That means everything that they read about in the Old Testament, the hundreds of prophecies that looked forward to the coming one, meaning he is that one. He is the Christ If he is these things, if he is Lord, and if he is Christ, they're sitting there thinking, then we better value what he said. Since he is these things, his words have value. They have authority. Authority, that's the word. The Lord and the Christ has the ability, the power, the background, the authority to speak into how we do this life by nature of him being the creator and the one that's been resurrected. And so this new way of thinking of saying, we will devote to this teaching. Implicitly, what's being said here is, we will devote to what Jesus said and what the apostles teach us about Jesus. We will not be devoted to anything else. We're being told, we are told to devote to this, which means by definition, we can't be devoted to everything, which makes sense for us. We understand that if we devote ourselves to certain activities or things that we like to do, if we're truly devoted, 
We don't have time to do other things, especially when these two different activities are mutually exclusive. If you're devoted to hunting, who's, who's devoted, you, you're, you love to hunt. Okay, there's some people here, a lot of people here. If you're devoted to hunting, you're not going to be devoted to Saturday morning shopping, right? You can't do both. Because if you're devoted to hunting, right, you get up really early, don't you? Most of the time. Here's what, he, what, what they're saying. We will focus and we will listen to the message of Christ. And we're not going to listen to other messages. We're not going to focus on other messages or other voices that are telling us how to live this life. And there were other voices. The Judaizers is one that's talked about in the New Testament. This group of people, Jewish people who would have been at the temple that day, who listened to what Peter was saying. And they said, no, we don't think so. 3,000 came to know Jesus Christ and were baptized. But there were thousands of others who said, no, thank you. We believe that you get right with God by following the law. And if you're a Gentile, then you have to be circumcised. And you have to do exactly what we say, and then even then, you won't be considered Jewish still. But you can still have some limited access to God. And so what he's saying is, don't devote to that message. Devote to the message of Christ, or the group of people in Acts that that Paul runs into, called the Epicureans, who say life is about how you feel, that the gods, the gods, are distant. And they're not really concerned with what you do in your life. Instead, just find what feels good to you and do it. He's saying, don't devote to that message. Devote to the message of Christ. And so for us, as we kind of move to thinking, okay, how do we do as a church? Are we devoted to hearing and listening and being fed by the voice of God in the revealed scriptures? Because the apostles' teaching translates for us, it translates perfectly to the written word of God in the closed canon. This is the same understanding of what Acts 2.42 believers would have been focused on. Is this our devotion? Where everything we do is based on this book. It's what we teach. It's what we know. It's what we do individually. It's what we do corporately. We will be guided by this book. I mean, is that us? As I was thinking about this question about, about this church and thinking about, you know, just praying about, is this what we're devoted to? I came across, I reread a really fascinating newspaper article about Mount Calvary Church. And I read it when I was applying to come and be the pastor here. But I, rereading it for whatever reason just really sparked something in me. It was so incredibly interesting to read about the history of this church. I would love if you could read this article. I, I forgot to bring some printed copies, but I'd love to share it with you. And it starts all the way back over 100 years ago. In 1915 through 1920, where, where things were not good for people that lived here. There was the First World War. Just reading about how awful this was for the community and for people, the death that was present in this war. 
But then this article talked about what was even worse than this first world war was the influenza. This sickness that was killing off entire families. That it killed off more people than the first world war did. And that these families are discouraged. The people in America, generally speaking, are completely deflated. And how generally speaking, people were going to church and the churches were were so optimistic, so positive that things were going to get better. And generally speaking, people weren't so sure about it. They weren't so sure because this message that they were hearing from the pulpit was not what they were experiencing in their life. And there was this kind of this divide between the pastorate and the teaching of the pastor and the people's experience. And in 1920, a couple of churches in E-Town decided to host this conference. And so around this same time, there was this pretty massive uh, nationwide Bible conference that was, that was kind of going, spreading all over the U.S., that these Bible teachers were coming in and they were preaching the gospel. They were talking about prophecy. They were talking about sin. And they were teaching from this book. And these, these conferences were so popular so popular that everyone was going, and the picture that I have as I was reading this article, that these two churches in Elizabethtown, I have their names, I don't know if they're still there or not, the Evangelical United Brethren Church and the First Church of God kind of said, well, everyone seems to like these conferences, let's go in together as two churches and host these conferences, very reluctantly. And as they started to do this, um, They were flooded with so many people. And here was a quote about that time. Everything came, everyone came, because up until this time, Elizabethtown was not deeply taught, especially in prophecy. Folks started to question their own pastors because of the truths they were getting taught. There was tremendous hunger for the word of God during this time. And as these churches were hosting these these week-long conferences, they started to kind of sniff out what was happening, that, that they were losing trust of the people. And so one of the churches, the United Brethren Church, decided to no longer associate with the conference. I love their excuse or their reason. It was too hard, quote, it was too hard on the carpet, they said. <laughs> and so it fell then on the United Church of God which very reluctantly continued to do this. And the way that this church was thinking was they thought, well, we will bring in a new pastor, okay, part of a denomination. We will call a new pastor to our church and we will let him figure this out. That's great to do for the new pastor. Thank you, that's good. Come on in and fix this. Change this, stop doing this. And Pastor Fall, F-A-H-L, came in and didn't do what they were expecting. Instead of canceling these conferences, he started doing revivals alongside of the conferences. And he started doing week-long revivals where people from the town he would share the gospel to. A couple of descriptions of this new pastor. He was a desk-pounding evangelist. If you ask me, Charlie Fall would go through a little literal wall of fire to win a soul for Christ. One of the neighbors said, this is funny. You could sit on the front porch and hear him. He was loud. One other person from the church. Yes, but I remember him in the hospital sitting up all night, 
going from room to room. He was so loving. He had no hobbies. His only interest was seeing souls saved. He was committed to revival through the preaching of God's word. Well, the church of God was not happy. Okay, the church that was expecting him to come in and kind of cancel this, kind of get rid of this, they weren't happy with him. And they told him, if you don't denounce what you've been doing, if you don't change and stop, then we will let you go. But Pastor Vall continued to do this. If he wasn't going to be stopped. And then eventually in October, they had a congregational meeting. Ours will be much happier tonight. And they said in front of the whole church that if, if he doesn't stop, literally this was the list of things that he had to do. He said, you must stop Bible prophecy conferences. You must stop community evangelism. You must, ref- you must support the very liberal Finley College. You must stop denouncing worldly sins. You must stop teaching grace and faith and eternal security. And Pastor Falstaff had said, I will not stop. The word of God is my authority. I will not stop. And at the same time, all this is happening. We're now in the early 1930s. The Great Depression was starting to have its impact on families. And you could just imagine the heartache and the pain that was being felt. Though the church at that meeting supported this pastor, 75% of the church supported this pastor. Um, the elders decided to let him go. And the next week in the newspaper, I loved this headline in the, in the Elizabethtown newspaper. It says, the transferred pastor refuses to go. It's like, you can fire me. I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm still here. And, and it talked about his prayer life. That he prayed. He said, God, what do you want me to do? I could go. Like, I could go to another church, but is that what you want me to do? And he felt God was telling him, you need to stay. And he got a little 100 foot by 100 foot piece of land down on Spruce that was given to him. They started, I love this too, they started a construction project on that little piece of land on October 31st. Two weeks later, they were ready to do a service. The two week long construction project, that's awesome. And he says, we will be revived We will revive the Bible conference movement, which the Lord originally used to change all of our lives. Devoted to God's word. And that's where this this gathering started, and there's more to the story. But the beginning of this church from those two churches was this pastor that said, I will teach and be devoted to God's word. And it is my aspiration, my hope, That this is where we will continue to always be. That we will be focused on this book and what it tells us to do and how we are to live. And that's why we teach classes on Sunday mornings before the service. Deeper classes for adults and for kids and students to learn this book. That's why we encourage and pray that you would devote yourself personally, individually to studying this book. That's why when we preach, I have nothing of authority to tell you. Like, I have nothing of value to tell you that's outside of the authority of God in this book. It's who we are. It's who we are historically. And it's my prayer that that it will be who we will continue to be. But that's not all they were devoted to. They were devoted to the preaching, the teaching of the apostles about Jesus Christ, the word of God. But they were also devoted to fellowship, to sharing 
That's the word fellowship, sharing with one another. And we're going to talk about some of the specific ways that this first church was sharing because the the rest of the verses here in Acts 2 are going to describe ways in which they were fellowshipping or sharing. This morning, we're going to talk more generally. This first church, these new believers, thousands of Jewish people who kind of were from all over, were sharing their lives with one another. Fellowship meaning they were sharing in relationship with other people. That this first church was committed to relationships. Committed to loving one another. Which is unique, especially in our culture today. We live in a highly individualistic culture that says 80% say, I can figure out God by myself. 80% say, I need no church to tell me anything about God because I can figure it out on my own. But you go back to the word, and and it makes sense that this church, this first church, would be devoted to relationships because it's how God designed it in the beginning. That if you go back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and you look at Adam, and you look at how good everything was, but then all of a sudden, as you're thinking about all these good things that God is making, God says, it's not good. And you're like, whoa, 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 what do you mean it's not good? God made the stars and he said, it was good. He made the sun and he said, it's good. The sea, he said, it is so good. He makes the animals and the grass and he says, it's good. He makes man and he says, it's good. But then all of a sudden, before the fall, this is what's significant. Before Genesis 3, before there was sin, as part of our picture, God says it's not good. What do you mean it's not good? It's not good for you to be alone. Here was a quote that Pastor Tim Keller says that just, to me, hits it right on the head. If loneliness was a burden for a guy who had no sin... How much more of a burden is it going to be for us? Before sin, if loneliness wasn't his design, how much more post-fall do we need to be together? Do we need to have fellowship and deep relationships with one another? Ephesians 2, if you could turn there, it'll, it'll be on the screen. Verses 19 through 22. Paul describes the relationships, the fellowship of this early church, the first church. And I love how he describes the bond of these relationships. Three relationships that he kind of emphasizes. He says, so you're no longer strangers and aliens, verse 19, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. We'll pause right there. Describing this relationship of this new community of believers, he says, you are like a new nation. And and we can understand this. The relationship between Americans, the bond that we have on the 4th of July, we're hugging everyone, we love everyone because we're Americans. The bond that happens with people who are in the same country. I was watching the Australian Open this yesterday. 
You know what the Australian, what sport that is? Sports trivia? Tennis, that's good. Tennis it goes in the middle of the night. And I was watching the Australians cheer for the Australian tennis player who was, who was in a really heated match. And the people are going crazy cheering on the Australian. And they all just love each other. They're hugging each other. They're going crazy because they are joined together by Australia. He's saying the bond, the relationship of this new church, of these new believers, Jew and Gentile, should be like that. You are part of a new nation, but even more intimate than a nation. He goes on and says, you are members of the same household. He says, this group of believers, Jews and Gentiles from all over the world, you are the same family. Think of the bond. Think of the closeness you have with your family. That by the fact that you share the last name, they may be a little weird. They may do things you don't approve of. Things aren't always great, but you love your family because you're family. And he describes this new community. And he says, you should be like family because you are family, because I'm your father. And if I'm your father, then you are brothers and you are sisters. But it's this last metaphor that I want to just kind of focus on as we, as we wrap it up. He describes him as being a house. Let's look at verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is what we, we just talked about. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you, were, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God and by the Spirit. He says, you are a stone and you are joining with other stones and you are becoming the temple of God. As I was thinking about this picture of stones coming together to make the temple of God, I thought about what I've learned about the state of Pennsylvania. The nickname, this is trivia, this is a lot of trivia today. The nickname for the state of Pennsylvania? Yeah, you guys are smart. You know more about that than tennis. The Keystone State, okay, that's the nickname for Pennsylvania. And as I was thinking about this picture of stones coming together, I thought of a keystone. That when an, when, when an architect is putting together a keystone or an arch of stones, that you could put these stones of the same size next to each other. But the problem is, is that when you, you're making this structure and you get to the top, if you just continue to put the same stones together, there will not be enough weight to hold it all together. And so this rock that's called a keystone, that's a little bit longer, it's a little bit more odd-shaped, is set at the top of this, of this arch. And this one rock because of its size and because of its weight and the way that it's placed, is able to lock into position to hold all these other stones together. And it's a picture of what the church should be like, that individually we're stones. And, and not, to, not to be demeaning, but stones aren't, individual stones aren't really good for much. Right? I mean, a stone, a rock, isn't going to keep you dry. A rock isn't going to protect you. 
It's not going to give you a house. It's not going to do anything for you by itself. But stones put together on the cornerstone of Christ can be a castle, can protect you, give you a place to live, protect you from enemies. And he says, this is the picture of the church. Alone, we are stones, but together we are a castle, we are a temple. And he's saying, what Paul is saying and what this first church understood is this, we need each other. We need each other. We need to be for each other and together supporting one another. That if we're going to be the church that God eternally has thought about, about declaring the message to the angels and to our communities, then we have to be the holy temple put together as rocks are put together. But why? Because like I said, we need each other. Life is way too difficult. Life is way too tragic to do it alone. And this is just, we, I pray that you've experienced this in church. That alone, individually, walking with Christ is way too much to handle. That God designed us as the church to live and to walk life in life in relationships to one another. That when hard things come, when they come, when tragedy comes, you're not a stone alone to face the tragedy. But that we are part of a house a temple, a castle that can come and support you. And it is one of the benefits and the blessings of church that we can lean on one another when things get hard. And and we've experienced it. My wife and I, our kids have experienced this. In loss, when you feel like you can't stand up to have the church to come surround you, it's the most wonderful thing. And so for us, as I think about our church here, are we a church that is devoted to fellowship and to this kind of relationships? I think we are. I think we are. I think we are a family. And many of you have experienced the love of the family of this church. But we live in a culture where this is not the norm. right? We, in a church culture, where the culture is, I will come into church, I will sit in my seat, we call it, we call it um, sponge, sponge worship. Like we come in, we soak it all in, and we leave for the rest of the week. And we've, we've sucked in and we've been encouraged and now we just go and we live our life. As opposed to this picture of family and church world is becoming very individualistic. And so my encouragement for us and for you is it is paramount. It is critical That if we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, that we are a church of relationships. That you are connected with other people. Now, and I've learned as a pastor that as much as I believe it is critical for us to be connected with people like a family or like a house or like a nation, um, I can't give you relationships. It's hard for me to say that. I I like to control. I like to do what I'm supposed to do. I like to make things happen. And as a pastor, I can't make relationships. I have lots of, we have programs, life groups, which I love. I mean, that's the heart of relationships is our life groups. 
And we've got men's groups, the trail groups, three men meeting together. We've got women's and moms and classes and all these ways that relationships can happen. But I can't, I can't make relationships happen, if you, especially if you're not that interested. And so my encouragement for you as you're a part of, of this church is to, to evaluate the relationships that you have and to pray about being this like these new believers in Acts 2, 42. And if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I'm new or, or I've just never really connected with anyone, I, I want to just encourage you, challenge you to, to pray about and think about what it would look like for you to take a step towards making relationships. And it may not be a program. It may be you inviting someone over to dinner. It may be joining a life group, which is where relationships happen, outside of this building where we pray and get to know each other. It may be a trail group for men. It may be the mom's group. It, any of the ways. But the biggest thing is your heart to say, yeah, I need that. I want to be known in this church. I want to be loved in this church. And what, what John tells us, and we close with this, is that when we start loving each other like Jesus wants us to, like this first church did, when we start living in these deep relationships then the world is going to look and say, I, I don't have that kind of relationship. I'm going through trauma and tragedy and hardship, and I want it. May we be that church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And I pray um, that we would continue to stand on the shoulders of the men and women who've gone before us who said, we will preach the word of God. And I pray that we would be encouraged by um, what, has, what these people, these men and women have done before us and that we would be uh, encouraged to continue to live out that legacy, being bound by your word. And God, I pray that you would help us to be a, a church of families, a big family, a big temple, a castle where um, it's not consumeristic or individualistic, but that we know each other and we love each other. And so for the person or the family that's, that's in here this morning who's, who feels lonely or feels detached, I pray that um, you would help them and help us to do better at um, welcoming in new members into our family. I pray for good friendship, whether it's through a program or it's just through this, whatever, however, God, we pray that you would give each of us good friendships and relationships. Because we want to be the church that people look at from this community and say, I want what they have. Only because of you, God, we pray. Amen.